Please open the Word of God to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. As you find your place, I want to ask you some rhetorical questions. How did this year go? Did it go according to your plan? And before I even ask that question, I already know the answer. It, it did not. We, you see, um, we can have plans, desires, goals, and sometimes they work out, sometimes, kind of the way we plan, but oftentimes not. Sometimes they go better than planned, sometimes they go worse than planned. And even as we close the chapter of 2023, we look into the year 2024, and we might have goals, plans, desires for what to come. And yet, in all reality, we really have little to no understanding of really what is to come. We might have these thoughts, but really, uh, we must look and lean to the Lord and simply seek to trust Him. But that's easier said than done, because we like to be uh, in control. We like to kind of be sitting on the throne as if we are ruling and reigning over our lives rather than bowing the knee and humbly saying, Lord, you are the one who is supposed to rule and reign in my life, and I want to follow you. And hopefully we'll seek to do that in the year 2024. But as we talk about um, our plans, I want us to think back to this scene of Joseph and Mary and think back to their plans. I don't know that they planned on leaving Nazareth originally and traveling all the way to Bethlehem. That, that wasn't part of their plan. Joseph didn't plan on Mary being with child. Um, there was a lot of things that they didn't have planned. And even as we turn the page from one scene to the next today, we're going to see that they might have had plans, but God had much bigger plans, different plans, providential plans. And the same is true even today in your and I life. Uh, the fact is, we love to have it all planned out, but we must come to the fact of God has a bigger, grander plan of redemption that we get to play a part and role in, and we ought not lose sight of that. So, having said that, we're going to conclude our series here today, Waiting for the Arrival. Last week, if you recall, we looked at the story of uh, the Gentile Magi that traveled from the east to come and worship Christ. And it's this glorious scene of God's glory radiating over Jesus' house. They come, they fall down before Christ, and they worship him. And it's an amazing setting, and, and they present their gifts as a means to worship him. And then after their time of worship, they must go back. And they might be thinking, Joseph and Mary, all is well. This is amazing. They pillow their heads, and we don't know how long after the Magi left that there's a drastic scene change. Something, once again, is going to change from their plans. I mean, now they're established in a home, and now they're going to be fleeing. And so that's where we pick up our story in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23. Hear the word of God. After they were gone... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. And he stayed there until Herod's death, so that uh, what was spoken of the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. 
he gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, and in keeping with the time he had learned uh, from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archaeus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father in heaven, lots of things just said from your word. At first glance, it might appear as if things are crazy, as if things are chaotic, as if there is no plan. And what is the point? And yet, Lord, we see right there three different prophecies, areas from the Old Testament where you point and are connecting the dots. And Father, I pray that as we go to the word of God, we would see that it is real, that it is relevant for our lives, and it's not just some random things put together. Lord, you have a providential plan, a plan of redemption for mankind. You said from the beginning of time, from Adam, that you would send a Messiah, someone to, to crush the serpent's heel head, and Jesus, the Messiah, would have his heel crushed. You, you made a covenant to redeem your people. You made promises to bring forth a Messiah, and you would see to it that even the evil acts of men would not overthrow your great plan. Father, may we see the importance of these things today. And so, Lord, help us to be free of distractions. Help us just to look in your word, be moved by your spirit, and to walk out of here changed and better as a result of our time in your word and our time of worship to you. We commit this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes, the, the title that we're looking at today is The Prophecies Fulfilled. And we're really going to be looking at man's plan and God's providential plan. If someone's reading the story, they might think, man, has God forgotten? Has God forsaken Joseph and Mary? I mean, it just seems like they're just one place fleeing from one place to the next. And actually what we're going to see is God is fulfilling and working his plan. It may not have been the, the road and the route that Joseph and Mary would have taken, but this is what God has planned all of the time. And so in the midst of Christ's birth, here's what we see. There was not necessarily peace on earth. There was not necessarily joy to the world. Now, peace had entered the, the earth. That is, Jesus came to offer peace with God and peace of God. That, that's what Jesus provides. But this was not a time of joy and life and light. This time period was one of cruelty. This time period was one of, of great death and great spiritual darkness. That's what we see in the scriptures here, and that's what we see when we put ourselves in the context of this scenery. And that is exactly what's going on. But Christ, Christ the Messiah, he has finally arrived and he has come to bring forth life and light 
And nothing is going to overshadow that. There might be things that, that might try to deter that from happening. Satan is going to do all that he can to overthrow that. Yet he is a defeated foe. And nothing can stop God's providential plan of what's taking place here. But as we think of this, we're going to see throughout the life of the Messiah as we go back to Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark next week. Here's what we're going to see. Conflict continues to hit. What's hitting? Well, the kingdom of this world, the temporary, and the kingdom of God breaking through through Christ. And so anytime Christ seeks to do a work, uh, there's going to be this counterattack of good versus evil. And we see it very quickly from this awesome, wonderful scene of the Magi worshiping Christ to wicked men seeking to do some wicked, horrible things. But here's what we know. God has a plan. He has a role for all of this. And so we're going to see real-life difficulties, but we're also going to see God's great plan of redemption as well. And so in these early days, it's not just narrating the birth of Christ, the infant stages, but we're going to really see the infinite plan of God throughout it all. That's why he puts, that's why Matthew puts these three prophecies in here for us to look back, to look ahead, to connect the dots and make sense of it. But before we do that, let's just talk about providence. What is God's providence? If I were to ask you to give me a definition, you might all give me different definitions, maybe similar, but we're going to define it this way, and you're going to see it right here on the screen, providence. God's purposeful actions of providing according to his perfect will. This should say providence, but God's purposeful actions of providing according to his perfect will. You see, some people might look at God as passive because I don't see him working right here in the front and center. But God is not passive. God is actually very active and all the things he does is for a purpose. And he's going to purposely act providing according to not my will, not your will, but according to his perfect will. So when we talk about God's providence, it's God seeking to enable, to carry out his will according to his way and his timing, not yours and not mine. And that's the, the perspective we need to take, that God is on the throne, that he is in charge and ruling over all these things, and not me, and not you. And that's hard for us. In Genesis chapter 2, we see Abraham after he does not have to kill his son Isaac. He talks about and gives God this name, Jehovah Jireh. That is, the Lord will provide. And just as he said he would provide a Messiah in the Old Testament, we're seeing God providing a Messiah here. And nothing is going to prevent that from happening. Man might try, but God will overthrow all of those things. And so as we consider all these things, our passage is going to point to three different prophecies this morning. I have this kind of big idea that I want us to consider this morning. It's God's commitment to his covenant. You could also say his, his promises of old, and particularly going back to Genesis chapter 3, of him providing a Messiah. God's commitment to his covenant displays his ability to care for his children. So it's not just to provide a Messiah for, for no one, but particularly for his children. Those who would confess and call upon Christ as Lord and Savior become his children, and he's going to provide this Messiah for them out of his great care, out of his great love. And so hopefully today, if nothing else, we can walk away having a greater appreciation for God's commitment to carry out his plans out of his great care for his children. That's hopefully what we'll see. You know, our passage doesn't point to, to a God who's just 
sitting back trying to figure things out. Oh no, this, this evil, bad King Herod, oh, what am I going to do? God's not caught off guard by these things. He actually knew of these things. And that's why Matthew points out these things to help us understand that God isn't just like, well, I messed that up, now I've got to figure this out. No, 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 no. This is all going to play out. I mean, the, the people of Jerusalem are under great oppression because they forsook God and they're facing the sinful consequences of their actions. I'm not, I'm not endorsing Herod's horrific actions, but we ought not be surprised when we live in a sin-cursed, broken world and, and we sin and man sins against us. Like, if you're expecting anything else, you're expecting heaven on earth and that's not going to happen. You see, God's going to restore things in his due time and his due order. But until then, we must just seek to trust and rest and look to the provision and providence of God in all of these things. So having said all of those things, I'm going to show a picture of a map. I don't think you're going to be able to see it very well. But we're going to see this whole full circle and full fulfillment of prophecy because the original journey of Nazareth for Joseph and Mary, they're going to go down through Jerusalem, enter into Bethlehem, and then they're going to see the scenery from there all the way over to Egypt, and then they're going to go back from Egypt all the way to Nazareth, and each step of the way is just prophecies of God fulfilling, of God connecting all of these things. If you just randomly open your Bible and read these things, you might not see it, but if you're a good student of the Word, I encourage you to be, you're going to start connecting and seeing the the dots get connected. So, having said that, the three sceneries, we're going to go from Egypt, then we're going to see Bethlehem, we're also going to see Nazareth at the end, and we're going to see the fulfilled prophecy, and how and why is that even relevant for my life today? Okay, so it says there in verse 13, after they, that is the Magi, were gone, and once again, we don't know exactly how long of time that was, but a very short amount of time, short-lived from this rejoicing to actually a time of running and having to find refuge in Egypt. There's this angel, right, that that warns them in the dream, get up and go to Egypt. And you see the word there, flee? That word flee is the word that that one would would, uh, attach to being a fugitive. It gives this thought of urgency without delay. It's not a packing up your home. It's not a a have a go away party. It's a flee and get out and get out now. Now here's what Joseph could have done. He could have just woken up from this dream and be like, wow, you know what, that sounds, that sounds intense and maybe I'll think about that and maybe I'll, in my plans, I mean, I hadn't planned on doing that, so I'm going to do that later, maybe a, a day, a week or whatever. Maybe he wakes up, Mary, he goes, hey, Mary, I had this horrible dream, let me tell you about it. We don't see any of that happening. Here's what we see happening. Rather than his plans of his desires, I mean, they're in a house now, they're kind of getting established there in Bethlehem. All of that is thrown out the window. We're, we're going to do and trust God, and we're going to go to Egypt. And so he, flee, he, he takes his family, grabs and gathers some of those things, or just some of the things he grabs. Well, they got to go flee quickly, right? And so if someone were to rob your house, you, you might grab a, your, your phone and your kids and split, right? You're, you're going to flee. He's going to grab Jesus, his wife, and probably those gifts that they just got, that are very valuable. Keep in mind, they were extremely poor. We already went over this last week, right? As they go to present Jesus at the temple and offer their offerings, two turtle doves and some lousy pigeons, not the normal lamb, right? We see 
we see their poverty, but God just provided these miraculous, expensive gifts, which would probably help pave the way and pay the way of this journey and their time in Egypt. So once again, we, we see God's providence just providing what they need when they need it. And not, not by accident, not by circumstance, but God doing what he does Unknown to Joseph and Mary, all of these plans, uh, they must have been thinking once the magic came, oh, this is so, so wonderful. This, this is going to be so awesome and amazing here in Bethlehem. And then they, they wake up from this and they're, they're, they're fugitives. They have to flee for their lives and the lives of their child. But God had greater plans for this Messiah. He was not going to allow this to happen. And so, as they travel to Egypt, most likely, they could have traveled 75 miles to the border of Egypt, but to really get beyond the reach of King Herod, they're going to have to travel another 100 miles. And as, so as they travel 175 miles with mom who just gave birth and their infant child and these, these gifts from the Magi, they probably would have traveled around 175 miles, and they're going to meet, uh, arrive in the city of Alexandria. Uh, during this time, bef between the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, the Greeks had started to rule and rise up in the Mediterranean. And Alexander the Great, maybe you've heard of him, he establishes the city. Of course, he's going to name it after himself. But this place became a huge refuge for Jewish people to flee. In fact, uh, shortly after, two years after the birth of Christ, it said that over a million people, Jewish people, will be fleeing and resting in this region. But here we see Joseph and Mary with not a whole lot of finances, no family, no friends, in a foreign land, saying, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to put my, hand, my, I'm gonna put my plans, I'm going to hold, hold them open-handedly, and I'm just going to trust in your providential hand. I'm just going to trust you to guide me each step of the way. It's going to be hard. I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm just going to trust you. And that's what we're going to see happening here. Joseph isn't debating. He, he gets up in the night, and they, they flee. They, they grab their things and go. So although this is an unplanned trip, maybe you're a planner, you like to plan things out. You, I, I, I can go on family vacation and be like, let's just go. My wife, she's very analytical. She, that, that's not her plan. She has greater plans, right? So maybe when our plans don't go according to our plan, it, it can be very alarming to us. Well, this is unplanned to Joseph and Mary, unknown to Herod, but I rest assured, this is very much known by God. This is not a surprise or shocker by God as these things uh, play out. And there's an important lesson here for us. You see, when, when you or I are sinned against, when we feel the injustices of this world and the frustrations of this world, we can rest in the fact that the Lord and his providential care has a reason and a purpose for the pain and the problems that you and I face. It's not meaningless. It's not just him trying to do some sort of cruel and unusual punishment where, no, that's not God. You don't understand the care of God if that's how you look at things when things go awry. In verse 15 here, though, we see that they're to stay there till the death of Herod. By this time, Herod had been ruling over 40 years. Um, he's roughly around the age of 70. Most historians, as they put all this together, would say that Herod probably didn't live too much longer by the time they got to Egypt. And so their time in Egypt is probably just a few months. But even during this few months, we're seeing that God is providing and fulfilling prophecy. Hosea 11.1 1 is what Matthew quotes here. Out of Egypt I have called my son. My son, in the book of Hosea, is the nation of Israel. It was a historical statement about what God had done in delivering the people out of Egypt. 
The setting of Hosea, though, is very interesting. I would encourage you to study the book sometime. It's a, a setting of failure and tragedy. You see, Hosea vividly portrays the unfaithfulness of Israel. For his wife, Gomer, what a name. She is found to be unfaithful many, many, many times over. And while his heart is broken, he loves her and is committed to calling her back in and restoring her. And that was God's heart for Israel. And he would call them out of that. And the Messiah would be sent to call mankind, that is his children, deliver them. And so there's this picture of the Messiah coming out of Egypt. Just as the son Israel was delivered out of Egypt, there's going to be a greater son, a greater Messiah, a greater deliverer through the Messiah, Jesus. Well, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, so how does he get to Egypt? Well, part of God's providential plan, putting them there and then delivering him out of there. You see, this, this, this aspect of this exodus is a type of Jesus. Bear with me, okay? I'm, gonna get, I'm not going to try to geek out or get too heady on you, but this thought of returning from Egypt with Joseph and Mary and Jesus just as God had once brought out the people of Egypt, he would be bringing out this Messiah. So when I say a type of Jesus, a type is a nonverbal prediction of an Old Testament person or event that illustrates some aspect of the person or work of Jesus. And there's many types, many types and many things that foreshadow and, and, and could be linked in Old Testament to New Testament Christ. You know, I was thinking, in the Old Testament, you have is the Israel ex exodus. And you have them fleeing from Egypt in the night. Remember the Passover setting? If they heard and heeded the word of Jesus and put the blood over the lamppost, right? They would be saved. They would be rescued. They would be delivered. And they flee quickly, hastily in the night. And here we see Joseph and Mary quickly fleeing hastily into Egypt. While many wanted to get out of Egypt, they longed to get into Egypt. And here we see Jesus, the Messiah, who's going to be coming out because he, being the firstborn, is going to be killed. And so we see these types, these pictures of Old Testament things that are a foreshadow. There are these, these vivid pictures that are going to be more fully known and represented as we come to understand the Messiah, and these prophecies. We're going to move quickly into our next scene, though. So let's, let's now look back to Bethlehem, and, and this is going to be in verses 16 through 18. And we're going to see this great sorrow, this great time of suffering. In verse 16, it shows a pretty dark side of the human heart. Herod the Great was actually Herod the Horrible. Herod was a pretty good politician in the sense of he wanted to somewhat appease the people, and so he would build stadiums and tracks and, and means to entertain the people. He would build up uh, the city of Caesarea and this beautiful port city. He would do these things to kind of make it a tourist attraction to entertain the people. But beyond that as being good deeds, pretty, pretty evil, pretty, pretty wicked. And so here's what we see. He is merciless. He is jealous and he is extremely suspicious of anyone or anything that threatens his throne. There was a time where he felt threatened by his brother-in-law, who was actually a high priest that he appointed. 
feels threatened by him, so he kills him. He actually has him drowned. And then the paranoia continues, and he has his wife killed, and the mother-in-law killed, and his two sons killed. And then five days before his death, I'm not making this up, this is all history, he has a third son killed. The killing is nothing new to him, and so this, this could be surprising to us or shocking to us, but not really to the people of this region because they knew the hatred and the wickedness of this man. In fact, a few days prior to his death, he knew he was dying, he knew his days were numbered. He had gathered up all of the distinguished Jewish people because he knew people would celebrate his, his death because he was so wicked. He had all the distinguished people gathered together, had them arrested and imprisoned. And he told his imperial guard, upon my death, kill all of these people so that everyone would mourn on the day of my loss. Pretty wicked dude. So when you think of this event, like this isn't some one-off thing, this was a, a people are going to be mourning all over the place based on this man, Herod, and it is horrific. And yet Herod and his pride and his arrogance and his anger he set out against the anointed one thinking he could what conquer God as if his plans could overthrow the providential plans of God sometimes we get that way right like I'm just going to figure this out I'm just going to fix it no 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 you're not going to figure it out you're not going to fix it allow the Lord to work his plan and just be submissive to it it's so much easier to go with God than to fight against God and, and we learned this last week. When we're going with God and when we're worshiping God who is worthy, we find great joy in that. When we resist that, there's great anger, great turmoil, great, great trouble within our life, and that is the life of Herod. Do you want to be like the Magi who are just worshiping for he is worthy and finding great joy? Or do you want to be in this category of Herod where you just hate life and life is miserable? One worships and one worships self. And so here we see this turmoil that's going on, the spiritual warfare of God's kingdom and man's kingdom colliding. So we might have a whole lot more questions than answers about the horrificness of all that's going on here, but it's once again this prophecy. I'm like, where is this prophecy? So Jeremiah 31, 15 is another type. The, the, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking of great sorrow that they would be experiencing in Israel when most of the people would be carried away into captivity. You see, Ramah was this, set, this city, this town, five miles to the north of Jerusalem, and it was the border of the southern and the northern kingdoms. It would be the gathering place that before they're taken off into captivity, where they all come, and most of them are going to be shipped away. And what's going to happen? All who are left are going to be weeping. Rachel is the wife of Jacob or Israel, who would be the mother of Joseph, who had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim in the Old Testament is oftentimes referring to those northern tribes, but Rachel would also be the mother of Benjamin, which would represent the southern tribes. And so when it talks about Ramah, this meeting place, when it talks about Rachel, it's representing all of the children of Israel as they're carted away to captivity. It's a heart-wrenching scene. So what we see here in Matthew 2 is nothing new as far as being taken away, great suffering, great sorrow, all of these things are nothing new. But here's what's interesting. As he quotes that, many people would have also known the next verse, which was you know, put in there by man as far as the, the verse breaks. 
the whole continual thought, and what you see in oftentimes in Matthew and other times, when they mention a prophecy, they only share a sh- short snippet. But if you were to read the next verse of Jeremiah 31, 16, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the reward of your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return from the enemy's land. So as they're weeping, as they're mourning, God gives them these words of comfort. I got a plan. And I'm going to restore. All that is hurt right now, take hope. I look to restore. And so while you and I face suffering and sorrow in this life, if you're a child of God, through the Messiah, there is great hope. You say, this world is so wrong. Yes, you're right. This world is so broken. Yes, you're right. That's just so bad. Yes, you're right. And yet through the Messiah, there is hope. Because through Christ, he promises to restore. So that which is broken, that which is destroyed, that which is horrible and horrific, God will make right. Ah, That gives us hope in the midst of all of the wrong, broken, corrupt, horrible things that we face. Because he hasn't called you to be judge and juror and to fix all of those things. He'll fix it in his due time. There is no evil act, no, no, no uh, anything that God does not see and God will not hold into account at some day. Not my way, not my time, not your way, not your time, but God's time, according to his providential plan. And so we see this lamentation of all of these people going on here. You know, it's sad, though, as you look into Luke chapter 19, as Jesus comes to the mountainside and looks down upon Jerusalem. While there's all this weeping here in Matthew 2, what does Jesus do? He weeps over Jerusalem because he knows that what has taken place in Matthew chapter 2 is really just the beginning of much warshed, of much bloodshed because of the spiritual battle that's taking place. Those who would reject Christ, oh, there's, there's a judgment coming. And 70, uh, uh, two generations later, under uh, the, the rule and reign of Titus, he brings his two troops in there and over a million people are killed and wiped out. And he spoke about this. He spoke about this happening. But we see all of these things that are taking place. But for his children, although we suffer, although we face sorrows, it's short-term in light of eternity, and that's where we must cling to. But let's look at our our third and final scene. Verses 19 through 23, where we're going to be traveling back to Nazareth. And in this scene, we're going to see some ridicule and some rejection that takes place. You see, once Herod had died, the angel appeared, directed them back to the region of Israel. Well, they're not going to be landing in Bethlehem. That's a little too close to the next ruler. And they needed to get to a place of refuge, a place that really nothing good is going on, and a place where they wouldn't think you'd be raising some sort of king and messiah. And he's going to direct them to Nazareth. The danger is gone, but the evil son, he rises up. And so uh, Archaeus, who would now rule in his place, would be just like his father. Prior to Herod dying, he would place this eagle figure over the temple gates. Some of the rabbis would be outraged by this. And they would lead a small revolt to remove the eagle. Herod would have those rabbis killed. And the following year, after he's dead and his son rises to power, Passover has come. His son kills 3,000 
Jewish individuals that are just innocent pilgrims that had just come into town for the Passover. So you can understand, while Joseph is not wanting to hang out in Bethlehem, you can understand why he might want to say, God, are you sure about this? And why God would actually press him on to higher places north of Jerusalem. So we see all these things happening. But you see there it says, so they settled down in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural, verse 23. And you might be thinking, well, where does it talk about this Old Testament prophecy? What's the chapter and verse? Well, it seems that several prophets would have made this prediction, but it's not specifically recorded in the Old Testament. You see, Jeremiah, Isaiah, lots of prophets said lots of things that aren't always recorded and in our scriptures today. Just like the Gospels contain lots of things that Jesus said, but they also say there's so much more that cannot be said that cannot be contained within this book. But apparently the original author, Matthew, inspired by God, is saying that prophets spoke of this and the original audience would have also said, yeah, that's true, that's true. Matthew isn't just making up something that maybe some prophet said. No, no, it was prophesied by prophets. Not one, but, but, but many pointing to a Messiah coming out of Nazareth. But it's interesting, the word Nazareth means branch. So it's very possible that it could just have been a play on words. Isaiah 11.1, 1, a Messiah text says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots will bear fruit. Jesus being that shoot or vine who will then bring forth the branches and bear fruit, which is believers, followers. But either way, we see them travel 55, north, 55 miles north of Jerusalem. They make this journey, and they make this the hometown where this is the hometown of Joseph and Mary. Now, you can imagine going back to there, why they would have mixed feelings. They would be shunned. They would be skeptics. There would be shame. Remember the events prior to them leaving town? Uh, there would be uh, whispers and gossip and slander. And I could almost see them thinking, you know, this, doesn't, this isn't what I feel like doing. I don't want to go back to Nazareth, but I'm going to trust you, God. you got a provincial plan for, for bringing us here. It's not my plan, but it's your plan. I'm going to trust in your plan. It would be hard. This region was known as a pretty hard region. The, it's kind of up on a basin about a mile and a half long, and so it's a, kind of a smaller town where everyone knows everyone, but they're, they're known as being pretty rough, pretty tough, pretty pretty much outsiders that don't really fit in with the, the crowd of, of Bethlehem or of Jerusalem. These are kind of like the, the outcasts, like, ooh. And in fact, if you were to think of like a top 10 places to live, this wouldn't even make the top 100 places. This would be like the top 10 worst places to live in this region because we see in the Gospel of John, chapter one, and you're gonna see the verse right up here, Philip, this is in before they're followers of Christ, Philip, found Nathanael. Philip's a follower. He found him and told him, we have found the, the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did that the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him, and Philip says, come and see, Philip answered. Here's what's interesting. You might be reading that and hearing, like, and, and Nathanael's like being sarcastic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Pfft, really? He's actually saying it with a, a genuine question. You know why we know that? Look at the next verse. This is what Jesus said. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, 
Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He is asking this honest question. Jesus recognizes Nathanael as a man of integrity, a man of honesty. So when he asks this question, does anything good actually come out of Nazareth? It's a legitimate question that, that Jesus is giving creed to. Because here's what we understand about Nazareth. You have that, that, that name attached to you, Jesus of Nazareth. Automatically, there's ridicule. Automatically, there's shame. Automatically, there's rejection. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's a horrible place. And yet, it's the place that God would choose for the Messiah to be raised and live for 30 years. It's interesting. He grows up amongst these people, and these people would eventually ridicule and reject him and look to throw him off that basin. And yet, this is where Jesus lives and dwells. You see, for Jesus, he takes on this title, Jesus of Nazareth. But he takes on the shame and the ridicule. You see, that's why Jesus came. He knew that he would take on shame. He knew that he would be facing ridicule and would be rejected. And what is that? That's fulfilling prophecy. Many Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, and then even the Gospels, they all talk about Jesus, the Messiah, not being the, the one that the, the Jews thought that they would raise up to have, but the one that God foretold about and prophesied about all throughout Scripture. And so Joseph and Mary, they'd gone full circle. They hadn't planned their journey to Bethlehem, Egypt, or back to Nazareth. I don't think they would have planned any of those things. But they humbly said, Lord, we just want to trust you, your providential plan. We just want to follow you. I, I don't know when or what or exactly that looks like. I just, I just want to trust you. The big idea was God's commitment to his covenant displays his ability to care for his children. So we walk away from a text like this and say, okay, so what? Here's what I want us to get through as we close. Man's plans and God's providence, a couple of just quick things to take away. Hold your personal plans lightly and hold God's providential plans tightly. That's what we see in verses 13 through 15. What about you? When your plans get derailed, do you tend to hold on to them, cling to them? Ooh, this is my plans! I had this planned! Why don't you just release that and say, God, I want to trust your providential hand. When it's easy, when it's hard, when I know, when I don't know, I'm just going to trust you. Will you help me to do that? Help me not to not cling tightly to this, but to just hold lightly to this and tightly to you and let your word, let your spirit guide me in all of life. Through God, he provided a deliverer, Moses, to deliver them out of Egypt. Through Christ, he looks to deliver us out and through whatever it is we're facing. Doesn't mean it's easy, not, doesn't mean it's going to be fun, it's not going to be according to our plans. But we can trust this caring, loving God every step of the way to be our deliverance. Number two is this, in a world of wrong, take hope in Christ who will make things right. You read verses 16 and 18, you just think, oh man, this is just bad. In the world in which we live, you just turn on the news, things seem to go from bad to worse, and yet, in the midst of all of this, we can take great comfort, great hope in a God who will one day wipe away every tear that you cry, that he's been collecting in a bottle. And he says, enter in. Enter into this place of eternal rest. Ah, that's so good. So good, despite all of the bads in this world, 
we can cling to this, this hope, this confident expectation of the promises proclaimed in the word of God. Number three is this. Commit to follow Christ by faith rather than feelings. There's no doubt, no doubt, Joseph and Mary didn't have warm, happy-go-lucky feelings about going back to Nazareth. No, like, yes, back to Nazareth, the place of ridicule and outcast. No, but they said, God, I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to follow you by faith. This is what you want me to do. I'm going to do it. The Lord still longs to do that in your life, in my life. He doesn't just long to... Uh, have us close our eyes and randomly figure out this life as if it's some riddle. No, he longs to reveal himself. Get in touch to his word and to his way for your life. Humble yourself before him. You know, when I think of all this, Jesus would be rejected by his hometown on the night of his betrayal all of his disciples flee, flee like sheep. And Jesus would come back and he talks about himself being the great shepherd. The great shepherd who stands on a hill or a mountainside and says, learn of me, look to me, allow me to, to love and lead you, follow me. Jesus is still calling people to follow him by faith. And so you and I and those that we know we must call them to bow the knee, to say, God, grant me the faith to, to believe you, to follow you. I want to forsake this sin, this lifestyle. The good news of the gospel is we go from abandoned outcasts like the people of Nazareth to being brought into the fold of the great shepherd. That is the good news of the gospel that should give us hope in this day in life and to others that don't know this Christ as well. That's the good news of the gospel that we need to proclaim this year. Let's pray.